Hello, Shirley fans. For the last three years, Jason and I have been bringing you the stories behind all of your favorite movies from the 80s, but today we begin a new series. In 2016, the Duffer Brothers introduced the world to Stranger Things. This show not only changed the way we all watch television, but surprisingly also truly impacted the music we listen to. From Africa to Running Up That Hill, Stranger Things has brought back songs of our past and introduced them to a whole new generation. So, the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast begins a new series bringing you the stories behind the songs of Stranger Things. All right, Dee, I know we're talking about the songs here, but I feel like we need to do something to intro these songs, something to get us kicked off. You thinking maybe recap rap? Could Dr. Fresh show up today? I think we can get Dr. Fresh out of his hole. Yes. (laughs) All right, let's bring it. Recap rap. Chapter one. The Vanishing of Will Byers. Our story begins in 83. The boys up late playing D&D. Will Lucas and Dustin are all at Mike's, but they gotta head home on their old school bikes. Okay, here's the hook of the feature. Will is snatched by some mystery creature. Next day, Mama Joyce calls the local copper a big old boy named Chief Jim Hopper. The search is on, but it's the worst she fears. Brother Jonathan is shedding tears. A will is gone, and the guilt he bears. Hold up, one kid missing, and another appears. The new one's a girl named yet unknown. Tattoo, shaved head, and a psych ward gown. A psych ward gown. Then he catches our girl stealing some fries. We can't get her to talk no matter what he tries. Except one clue that she is given. Her name ain't a name. Her name's Eleven. Meanwhile, Nancy, Mike's older sister, is smooching upstairs with her brand new Mr. Steve Harrington. Steve Harrington. Harrington. Steve Harrington. An agent appears and Benny gets killed. But they can't stop Eleven. This girl is skilled. The boys go searching out in the rain and suddenly they find their friend no wait it's a girl not their buddy will what's her name don't know let's call her l let's call her l that was awesome d thanks man i mean dr fresh i mean dr fresh (laughs) obviously right yes (laughs) Okay, let's go. Okay, everybody, we are back for the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. We are recording not only audio, but we're recording video today because we're going to start the YouTube channel officially. If you have been our loyal podcast listeners, be sure and go over to YouTube and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you are joining us for the first time on video, go check out our podcast. You can find us by searching up Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast on whatever your favorite podcasting platform is. Right, we're on Facebook and Twitter at Shirley podcast we've got an instagram page we're all over the place we've been talking to each other for years now and i can talk to you like this really up close and personal because you don't have nose hair thank you are you using anything in particular actually i have this great product by manscaped it's called the weed whacker turn it on you stick it up in your little nostrils cuts all the nose hairs gets rid of them i didn't know manscaped had stuff for your nose manscaped's got stuff for your nose it's got stuff for your balls it's great stuff that's actually what i use my manscaped stuff for It's good for trimming down there, but they also have products for smelling good down there. I use the Manscaped stuff on my face, too. Hey, listen, these guys have... You not make any comment about the fact that I use Manscaped stuff on my balls and my face? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Manscaped makes great products. Yeah, so... And this is like a gift that you can give to your wife, right? Taking care of yourself, looking good, looking trim. It's just like getting a haircut. You want to look good for your wife. Guys, you got to remember, giraffe looks taller on the plains does on the forest and as a special treat for listeners of our show when you go to manscape.com and you find what you want if you just put in the promo code serious 20 then you get 20 percent off of whatever you order which can be a sizable savings of some of the stuff that they have but let me say all worth it yeah these products are stuff that you need your wife wants you to get and we're offering you a 20 percent discount high quality stuff that we have tested out multiple times great yes. product whack it whack it Let's talk Stranger Things. Are you ready to do this or what? Let us jump in and talk about Stranger Things music 
for everybody who is used to us talking about movies, we're not going to be talking about the episodes other than to tell you where you can find this piece of music in the particular episode. We'll have discussions about the awesomeness of Stranger Things later on, but today we're talking music. Guys, if this is your first time to join us, we are super excited to jump into all of the songs behind the Stranger Things episodes. We will be talking about suicides. We will be talking about serial killers. We will be talking about LSD. We'll be talking about all kinds of crazy things. And it's literally nothing to do with the show itself. These are the stories of the bands and the musicians behind the music. So this series of episodes is going to be killer. That doesn't even include a crazy hang gliding accident and an attempt to poison the president of the United States. It's going to be amazing. The stories behind these songs are crazy. Crazy. Before we get into those stories, we need to say thank you to our executive producer of this episode, Miss Jill McCormick, who is a really a good friend, sort of a friend of a friend. She is friends with Melissa Mingle. Remember Melissa Mingle from our Duran Duran Rio episode? Melissa came on and expressed her undying love for John Taylor and then also helped us with the Rio episode. If you haven't heard her, go back and listen to that. But Jill McCormick sort of found us through her and is now our executive producer for this episode. Jill, thank you so so much. Thank you, Jill. If you want to be an executive producer of our episode, it's so simple. You go to patreon.com backslash Shirley Podcast. That's S-U-R-E-L-Y Podcast. And for as little as $5 a month, a cup of coffee, if you will, for Jason and I to split, you become an executive producer. There are more tiers after that, and you can get fun, exciting prizes. Would you like to model our cup? Ooh, yes. Oh, nice. Ah. Yeah. Ah. Shirley Can't Be Serious Tumblr. So be sure and check out our Patreon page. If you can't do that, be sure and subscribe to the podcast. If you're on the YouTube channel, be sure and subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. Leave us a five-star rating comment below. I've got another surprise that I'll save for later on in the show for those people who are joining our YouTube channels. Awesome. Awesome. Hey, we're not asking for free money here. We actually have value. We release a podcast a month on One Hit Wonders. We've done the 70s. We've done the 80s. We've done the 90s. We think it's really cool and some of our best work is over on the Patreon. Yeah, those are exclusive episodes for Patreon members only. So if you want to get into that content, definitely subscribe on our Patreon. Fantastic. And if you are listening to us for the first time on YouTube and you want to subscribe to the podcast, we will put a link for you down below. Okay, so we are jumping in November 6th, 1983. This is season one, episode one of Stranger Things. Interestingly enough, when we started looking at this, I didn't get a whole lot of 80s music. I was surprised. I was like, okay, wait a minute, what? So I'm going to take you back because we've got songs from the 60s. But I'm going to take you further back. I'm going to take you back to the 50s. Okay. And I'm not going to take you back to the 1950s. I'm going to take you back to the 1850s. What? I'm going to blow your mind here, my friend. Okay, now listen. For those of you who are on YouTube and don't know D very well yet, D likes to chase and follow down rabbit holes. He <laughs> is the white rabbit. Yes, yes. Do you remember Do you remember The Matrix? That's the very first scene with Neo. Follow the white rabbit. You got the girl with the tattoo. Important. But before I get to that, let me tell you about 1853. This guy, who's a photographer, his name is Charles Luttridge Dodson. He's out taking some pictures of a church, and this is the 1850s. So these little girls see him, and they're fascinated by a camera. I mean, nobody's seen cameras back then. This is an incredible thing. So they go over, and they start talking to him, and he befriends them, this 20-something-year-old man and okay. these 10, 12-year-old girls. Okay. And he becomes friends with their family, and he starts taking photographs of the girls. He just happens to have clothes and costumes for kids at his studio. Yes, I know it sounds a little weird. <laughs> okay. And he stays friends with the family. Fast forward a few years to 1862. He and the girls are on a boat ride together. They're going from Oxford to Godsbow. Okay. And... The girls are bored, and so he makes up a story, and he uses one of the little girls as the character in the story. Her name is Alice Liddell, and she's so impressed with the story, little 10-year-old Alice, that she encourages him to write it down. And so what Charles Lutledge Dodson does is he takes his first two names, and he rearranges the letters to create a new name, and that new name is Lewis Carroll, and the little girl Alice becomes Alice in Wonderland. 
You're blowing my mind already. We're, we're 10 minutes in, you're blowing my mind. <laughs> and we haven't even gotten to the 20th century yet. I know, right? Okay, well, let's jump forward to the 20th century, 1953, May. Author named Aldous Huxley. Have you heard of him before? No. So he's he's got a book he? called... He? Aldous is a, a he, yes. Okay. Uh, he's got a book called Brave New World. It's kind of a dystopian future book. Okay. But he's got another book that you probably have heard of. It's called The Doors of Perception. You think you've heard of that before? Mm, sounds familiar. Okay. We may touch on that here in just a little bit. Okay. So in 53, he comes across this guy, the scientist named Humphrey Osmond, who has been doing tests with hallucinogenic chemicals found in peyote. And so Aldous Huxley corresponds with him. They get together. He takes some of the mescaline from the peyote and has a hallucinogenic experience, which he then writes about in this book called The Doors of Perception. Humphrey Osmond, by the way, is the guy who first used the word psychedelic to describe the feeling that you get when you take these drugs. Okay. And Aldous Huxley was the first one to use the word in print. And The Doors of Perception later inspired a band to take their name, and that band was The The Doors. So, psychedelic becomes very important in the 60s, and there's an entire movement of music called psychedelic rock. Uh And for the first several songs that we have on Stranger Things, it's psychedelic rock. It is, that's for sure, yes. Get much higher, come By the way, for the record, the only man that I have ever heard of with the name Alice is Alice Cooper. School's out for summer, my friend. I said Aldous. Oh. Aldous Huxley. Okay. All right. Okay, so we're going to go track by track through this episode as the music appears. Except the very first song that you're going to hear is actually the theme of Stranger Things, which was composed by Kyle Dixon and Michael Stein. And we will talk about that song, but not today. There are far too many songs in this episode. We'll talk about those guys. We'll talk about the music supervisor, Nora Felder, later on. But today we've got so much music to cover that we have to just dive in to the first song First needle drop, if you will, the diegetic music, the music that we hear as background music in the episode. First song, out of the gate, can't seem to make you mine. Okay, so this song is by The Seeds, off of their debut album, which was also called The Seeds. At this point, they're garage rock. They would eventually become psychedelic rock, but this one is still more in the garage rock realm. This song pops up in the episode at 16 minutes and 13 seconds when Hopper arrives at the police station and everybody is busting his balls. (laughs) You know what mornings are for, Dee, right? (laughs) Coffee and contemplation. Right. Coffee and contemplation. There's a kidnapped child. So this band formed in L.A. in 1965. That album, The Seeds, was released in 1965, but it didn't chart until they re-released it in 1967, which is about the time that psychedelic rock is really starting to take off. That's right. The lead singer for the band is a guy named Sky Saxon. He wrote this song. The band would later change their name to Sky Saxon and the Seeds after certain members left. But this song is really very subtle in the background of this kind of hilarious scene. Yeah, so this is the first song that the Seeds recorded. I, I thought it was interesting. They they played this song late at night on AM radio stations, and it became like a, a 60s cult classic. Yeah, people would stay up late just to hear this song. Yes, and it didn't really even become a hit until after their song Pushing Too Hard became a hit, and that was psychedelic rock. Yeah. I've got some stuff I want to talk to you about Sky Saxon. Tell me about Sky Saxon. All right, so the lead singer of The Seeds is this guy named Sky Saxon. They don't really know how old he is because, quote-unquote, age is not important. (laughs) Right? We're already getting into the flowery stuff already. Honestly, that was one of the conclusions of Aldous Huxley in his books, The Doors of Perception. It's kind of crazy. There you go, right? Keep on going. Okay, so here's the deal. So in 1973, he becomes a member of this religious group called the Source Family Religious Group. And it started by this guy named Father Yod. He also went by the name 
Yehoah. Okay. Okay. All right. Sound like a word you may have heard religiously before? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, yes. Sounds a little bit like Jehovah. Yeah, or Yahweh. Yeah. Or, you know, Yoda. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So right. anyway, you have this group called the Source Family Religious Group. It's born out of this guy named Father Yod who had this health food restaurant on the Sunset Strip. It's organic, it's health food. Uh, it's kind of the hot new thing. And it was he wasn't just nobody. He had regular clients like John Lennon and Marlon Brando. Okay. I mean, these are these the, are legit people, right? The chia seeds for the elite. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So they start this religious group in the Hollywood Hills. They have a commune, right? And Sky Saxon jumps right in. And he joins in 1973. Okay. Now... The funny part is not that this lead singer, The Seeds, joined this religious group. The funny part is how this guy, Father Yod, came to his unfortunate demise. Okay? okay. You with me? So the religious group's in California for a while, and then he decides he wants to get out of California, so he moves to Hawaii. And then on December 26th, 1974, the day after Christmas, Father Yod decides, I would like to go hang gliding. <laughs> He's never been hang gliding in his life. Okay. So go ahead and go off the highest cliff around, right? <laughs> so he goes off a 1,300-foot cliff, crashes his hang glider yeah. on the beach. Boom. It's like, I'm totally hurt, right? How is he? Uh. Okay. <laughs> okay. So they haul him off to the hospital. Uh. Nine hours later, he is dead. Ah. So Father Yoda passes away day after Christmas, 1974, from a tragic overzealous hang glider accident. More like Father Chode. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Are we done with uh, are we done with the seeds? I am done with the seeds, yes. Alright, let's keep rolling. Song number two that we have, we get to introduce a band that will be very important a little bit later on, okay? And this band is Jefferson Airplane. Don't you want somebody to love? Don't you so Jefferson Airplane was founded by a guy named Marty Balin. Yes. Here's the cool part. He was very business savvy about the way that he did this. He has this band. He knows that bands have to play some good clubs to get notoriety. So he starts his own club. He gets like three other investors to pay 3000 each and they start this club and it's like the club for the musicians to go to and see other musicians. And so you have bands like the Grateful Dead. You have bands like the Steve Miller Blues Band. You have bands like The Doors yeah, okay. that come in there and play. And one of the bands that came in there and played was the band called The Great Society. Okay. And they had this really groovy chick singing <laughs> for them. She had started this band with her husband, but she was really above and beyond where that band was. Yeah. And so a little bit later on, Jefferson Airplane loses their lead singer, their female lead singer. She decides that she's going to go start her family. Yeah. Yeah, She is not going to be a lead singer for this band anymore. So they are looking for another female lead. And they really said there's only two options. Janis Joplin or Grace Slick. They're the only two women who are out here singing in San Francisco right now. And San Francisco is the hub of the world at this point. If you're going to San Francisco. For sure. You're going to see lots of flowers in your hair, right? Absolutely, yes. And so they go to talk to Grace Slick and within minutes she says, yeah, I'm in. I'm leaving my husband's band. Right. And she brought two songs with her, one of which we'll talk about in a little while. Okay. The other one, Somebody to Love, written by her brother-in-law for The Great Society. She brings that over with them, and it's the band's first really big single. Yeah, for sure. So this song, She Has Funny Cars, is the first song on the first album with Grace Slick. Okay. And they had also gotten a new drummer named Spencer Dryden, who is a huge force in the band. Okay. By the way... Half-nephew of Charlie Chaplin. Get out of town. I'd like to blow your mind with these little tidbits, right? Okay. So this song, She Has Funny Cars, is the opening track of Surrealistic Pillow, one of the very first pioneering psychedelic albums. And it appears in our episode at 21 minutes and 41 seconds, where we get the introduction of Young Eleven. Yes, 
I've got to throw this out at you. This is what blew me away. A Jefferson airplane. You know this? No. You're, oh my gosh. Am I, okay. No, tell me. You're giving okay. me new information. I'm excited. I'm, right. I'm on the edge of my seat. This is what a Jefferson airplane is. Okay. You ready? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a match, wooden match, that's split in half yeah. in order to work as a roach clip so you can hold your joint. Oh. That's a Jefferson airplane. Okay. I did not know that. Kind of makes sense, right? Yeah. I got something for you on Marty Balin, okay? Yeah, yeah. Marty Balin is the guy who wrote this song, She Has Funny Cars. Yes. He's also the you know, co-lead singer of Jefferson Airplane. Right. He had a song in 1981. Okay. Do you know that song? No. Let me play it for you right Okay. Yeah, I know that song. Yes. One Uh Hit Wonder from 1981. Marty Balin, going solo, after breaking out of Jefferson Airplane with the song Hearts, reached number eight in 1981. Yeah, he was, uh, his departure from the band had to do with the cocaine that was being used, and it was a bit too much for him. Yeah, he couldn't take it. Yeah. By the way, another claim to fame by Marty Balin? Yes. He managed to get punched out during the Altmont (laughs) concert, the giant free 300,000 people concert in California. Ah, the one where the guy got stabbed. Yes, a young man who got angry and tried to storm the stage and the Hells Angels with their motorcycle chains and weighted pool cues did not take very kindly. The Hells Angels were working security at this concert. They hired the Hells Angels Yes. to be security. Yeah, and who would have thought violence broke out? That's crazy. They were paid $500 worth of beer. <laughs> well, you get what you pay for. You get what you pay for. Yeah. And Marty Balin managed to get punched out by one of the Hells Angels. All right. We are going to talk more about Jefferson Airplane in just a little bit when we get to a slightly more well-known song. Before we leave this song, I want to throw this at you. When was the last time we talked about Jefferson, I think it was Starship at the time. Jefferson Starship. We've talked about him a couple of times. Have we? Okay. I talked about Sarah in our very first episode, Michael Jackson. Bad versus Thriller, by the way, guys. If you want to go check that out on the podcast, great, uh, great yeah, great couple of episodes. Yeah, um, but that was were they were they in that atrocity from 1970? You got it. Yes, when we and the guys from the Thirty Something Podcast got together and we talked about the Star Wars Holiday Special. There are a few things <laughs> in life that I like better than getting together with the guys from the Thirty Something Movie Podcast. Be sure and go check those guys out. They are a barrel of fun every single time. Um, but that is one of my favorite episodes to go listen to. And yes, Cloud City. We built this Cloud City on Rock and Roll. <laughs> yes, because Wookiees and Han Solo and Princess Leia means Jefferson Starship. Yes. Okay. <laughs> sure it does. Okay. All right. So... We will talk more about okay. Jefferson Airplane a little bit later on when we get to their more well-known song. We built this city. Not that one. Okay. And we <laughs> and we will give a little more detail that will be fun. But for now, let us move on to the next song in the episode. It's called I Shall Not Care by Pearls Before Swine. This one appears at 26 minutes and 48 seconds into the episode where Benny is grilling a burger and grilling young Eleven, trying to get her to answer some questions, but she has remained totally silent up until this point, giving them both the grill action. (laughs) Okay, so this song, I Shall Not Care, comes off of the album One Nation Underground, (laughs) Okay. And it's this, Pearls Before Swine is a quote from the Bible. It is. It's Gospel of Matthew, I believe. Yeah. It's an interesting quote from the Bible that we don't necessarily need to get into here, but the band took that name. The record company is ESP. This is ESP's most successful album with somewhere between 100,000 and 250,000 sales. This is probably not a band that you've heard of. It's not a band I've heard of. Right. So, still psychedelic, but this is more like psychedelic folk, and we're still definitely in the 60s, right? (laughs) 
on this album, other than I Shall Not Care, we have a couple of other songs. One of those songs is called Oh Dear Miss Morris. Okay. Oh Dear Miss Morris. It is a banjo and an organ and Morris code. <laughs> and the Morris code spells out F U C. This is radio friendly, so I'm not going to say what the last letter is, but I bet you all can guess. So in Morse code. In Morse code. Yes. So like in a banjo Morse code. Yeah. Beam, beam, beam. No, I don't. Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay. So the the album cover for this one is a scene from Bosch's Hell. And as I mentioned, it's called One Nation Underground. I don't really know that they are as biblical as their band name may sound. Okay. But this particular song was based upon a poem by Sarah Teasdale. Sarah Teasdale was a Pulitzer-winning poet, and the poem that this song is based on is thought by many to be her suicide note. Okay, interesting, interesting. You got me. 1933, she overdosed on pills. And because of the lines of this poem, everybody believed this was her suicide note. And that's what I Shall Not Care is based upon. Wow, you're blowing my mind right there. That's fantastic. And that is all I have (laughs) on this band and this song. And I have nothing else to contribute. (laughs) Well, that's okay. (laughs) It's minor. It moves on. Okay, let's move on. So, the next song in the episode is Jenny May by Trader Horn. Hey, Jenny May, are you coming out to play? Trader Horn, again, another psychedelic folk. We're still in the 60s. Four songs in, and we're still in the 60s in this obviously 80s throwback series. What's yeah. going on? Right. All right. I don't know, but let me tell you about Trader Horn. Okay. All right. Trader Horn is a British duo composed of Judy Dibel and Jackie McCullough. They only made one album, which is where, of course, this song appears. That one album is called Morning Way, released in 1970. Nice. Good job. So it's not quite 60s. We've moved on to the 70s, but we're still a far afield from the 80s. There you go. And so Trader Horn, you can like this. This is a deep hole. This is a rabbit hole. I follow the white rabbit down this Let's hole. Let's go. Okay. Okay. So the Trader Horn is named after DJ John Peel's nanny, whose name was Florence Horn. Okay. Do you remember who DJ John Peel is? No. We talked about him when we did our Def Leppard episode. He was a DJ in the UK that was very popular and at the time was very into punk and new wave, but he thought Def Leppard was great. And so he played their EP over and over again and is probably a key to them becoming famous. Wow. So his nanny, the Horn, and there was also an actual explorer named Trader Horn who right. used to go, like he went down to Africa and tried to free slaves and an, a princess that was being held captive. It's very secondhand lions swashbuckling stuff. Sounds like Mario. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So this song appears, this is such a great part. This song appears when Benny is making a call and Eleven fixes a broken fan. <laughs> she does. She's very yeah. handy that way. She is just, it, this comes in at 28 minutes and 58 seconds. She is chowing down on some French fries and there is a squeaky fan and she's unhappy with it. It's annoying. She stares and suddenly the fan doesn't work anymore. It's our first inkling that she has some sort of supernatural powers. Again, this is episode one of Stranger Things, so we're learning all about this universe. There's something special about this girl. Yeah, and at this point, when the fan does stop in the song Jenny May, it cranks up this uh, haunting verse that Judy Dibel is singing, and it's very creepy and beautiful at the same time. Very impactful moment just from this pretty well unknown song from a very unknown band, right? So I looked a little bit. They were making their way. They toured with Humble Pie and Yes and Genesis. They set up a music festival to like launch the band. They had made their album. And then just before the music festival was about to happen, she quit the band. She quit? Judy Dibel quit the band. Okay. And she went to go make music with her husband. And they did that for a little while. And just three years later, she retired from music. Didn't sing another beautiful haunting thing again for over three decades. 
and then she came back out in 2004. What? Yeah. So she had several releases since 2004. She just passed away a couple years ago in 2020, and some of those old Trader Horn songs have grown in popularity over the years. The singles are considered by some to be collector's items at this point. Fantastic. Good job. Thanks. Blow my mind. Okay. So we're four songs in, and we still haven't hit the 80s. What's the deal? I don't know, but what we have now is young Nancy in her room getting ready to study. Steve, the tool at this time, (laughs) is sneaking up the fire escape, and we hear Nancy listening to the song that sounds very 80s. It's called Every Little Bit by Jackie James and Ian Kernow. The only problem is it was made in the 21st century. What? What? So this scene pops up at 38 minutes and 9 seconds, and we're well over the halfway mark, and just now hearing an 80s sounding song, it sounds like Madonna almost, but it's not. It is this new song by Jackie James and Ian Kernow. You got any info on it? Okay, so here's what I got on this, okay? Yeah. So when you and I were talking about this, we agreed both to us it sounded like Madonna. Yeah. When I was doing some research, I found a bunch of people who said, a bunch of UK and European people who said, it sounds like Kylie Minogue. Kylie Minogue is the... She, I mean, she had a very Madonna kind of sound. She did. She was engaged to... Michael Hutchins. Michael Hutchins of NXS. We talked about that. Be sure and check out our NXS versus George Michael, Faith versus Kick yes. episode on the podcast. But please, go ahead. Kylie so, Minogue. So, here's the deal with Kylie Minogue, okay? She was a TV star, beautiful, and... How does a firecracker? My goodness. So she followed the sort of Madonna track, formula, right? Yeah. Of let me be as sexy as possible, uh-huh. also make good music, and I'll sell a ton of records, and that's what happened, right? Yeah. So you you and I both thought it sounded like Madonna. A lot of other people thought it sounded like Kylie Minogue. Well, it turns out that Ian Kernow worked with Kylie Minogue. Oh. And so there's a definite connection there. So Jackie James is a Scottish singer-songwriter and keyboard player. She wrote a song called Heartbeat. For a group called Steps. Okay. So apparently this was huge in the UK. was a number one hit, million seller. By the way, the B-side of that single was a remake of a song called Tragedy by the Bee Gees. Go back, <laughs> check out our Bee Gees Saturday Night Fever episode. Yeah. I was just sitting here thinking how Kylie Minogue, the song that I remember is The Locomotion. Do The Locomotion with me? Yeah. yeah. Big hit in 1988. For me, Kylie Minogue is Can't Get You Out of My Head. Woo. That video. Yeah. Okay. So, but anyway, Ian Kernow yeah. is a partner with her in this powerhouse music. So, Jackie James writes and sings. Ian Kernow, he writes and sings. But he was a keyboardist in an 80s rock band that you may have heard of called Talk Talk. I don't recognize that. They band, had yeah. one humongous hit called It's My Life. Oh, yeah. Yes. 1984, big hit, It's My Life. Gwen Stefani actually redid it, and it became a hit again. Yes. So Ian Kernow, keyboardist for Talk Talk. Nice. Okay? Good. Back to Jackie James for a second. Okay. Okay, so Jackie James has written songs for Kylie Minogue. Okay. Super hot. (laughs) Jennifer Lopez. Okay. Super hot. Yeah. And Celine Dion. Not. She has her days. No. Just as long as she's not covering ACDC. (laughs) <laughs> yes, that was the worst. Uh, all right. I loved how uh, Ian Kernow, he's on Twitter. He's active on Twitter. We maybe need to tag him on this one. He says, according to him, making music is the greatest job in the entire world, except maybe Formula One racers. Okay. <laughs> there you go. That's all I got. Every little bit, a modern song made to sound like the 80s, and they pull it off. Okay? Yeah, love it. All right. Moving on. We ready to move on? Yes. Okay, so now we're back with Jefferson Airplane. 
once again. And this is probably their most well-known song of all time. I would have told you, had I not gone back and looked at it like I did, that this was like one of those epically long songs. It's less than three minutes long. Really? Yeah. Okay. So, the song that we're talking about, second song by Jefferson Airplane, White Rabbit. One pill makes you larger And one pill makes you small And the ones that mother gives you Okay, so we talked about Alice in Wonderland. We talked about Aldous Huxley and the doors of perception. We talked about the idea of psychedelic and psychedelic rock and how Aldous Huxley took this mescaline with Humphrey Osmond and had this hallucinogenic experience. So part of the hallucinogenic movement of this time was this new drug that had been discovered called lysergic acid dithalamide, better known as LSD. Now, how does that relate to this song? <laughs> First, I mentioned earlier that Grace Slick had written this song while she was still with the Great Society. Well, she had decided to try LSD, and this song was written as she was coming down off of that high. Wow. And you sent me something, as far as the first lyrics in this song go, that really drive that point home. Yes. So, in the lyrics it says, One pill makes you larger, one makes you small, and the one that mother gives you don't do anything at all. Larger, small, don't. L-S-D. I love it. I would have never gotten there, and that is fantastic Woo! information. Love it. Thank you. So, of course, this song is completely based on Alice in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll that we talked completely. about earlier. And some people even think, oh, did Lewis Carroll, like, drop acid? No, it hadn't been invented for, like, 50 years later, you know? It was uh -huh. not going to be around. And he was... He was a deacon at an Anglican church there. He wasn't doing drugs, right? Okay, he just wasn't, all right? Okay. He's taking photographs of little girls, but he was not doing drugs. Okay. Once LSD was discovered, they started using it for medicinal purposes. They tested it with military, tested it with the FBI. They used it to try to cure certain things. I mean, it was treated as a drug, but the psychedelic effects soon found their home in the counterculture that was going on in the 60s. One of the guys that was pushing hard for his students at Harvard to try the drug was a guy named Timothy Leary. Yeah, I've heard of this guy. Yeah, so he became enemy number one as far as Richard Nixon was concerned, which brings us to another interesting story that we'll tell in just a minute. Okay. But because Richard Nixon decided that this lysergic acid dithalamide was bad stuff, he enacted the Controlled Substances Act 30-something years ago, and all experimentation and scientific research on the drug stopped until recently. And they've started doing stuff with it again, using it in microdose forms, and it has actually been effective in curing things like ADHD and depression and other mental illnesses. So I don't know that that's what everybody was using it for back then, but it's just an interesting history on this particular drug. So you're telling me hyperactive kids, if they get a little bit of this and they start watching the walls melt and stuff happen, that they chill out. <laughs> it makes Chill sense. the heck out. It makes total sense. So this song was written in December of 1965 by Grace Slick. It was released June 24th, 1967. She wrote it on a piano she bought for about 50 bucks, right? Okay. It was missing keys yep. in the upper register. Yeah. She said it didn't matter because she could hear it in her head. It's awesome. Parents thought that this is like encouraging children to do drugs. Hmm. She wrote it as a slap at parents for reading us these stories like Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan, who sprinkles magic white dust on everything to make everything better. Wizard of Oz. 
They fall asleep in the poppies, right? That's right. Yeah. Marty Balin calls this Grace Slick's masterpiece. It absolutely is. Let me just talk for a minute about the makeup of the song itself. We haven't talked actual music stuff, so I'm going to nerd music on you for just a minute. Okay. And then we can get back to just how awesome this song is. Oh, boy. Okay. So there's a piece called Bolero by a composer named Ravel. Yes. And I've seen that Bo Derek movie. That's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Forget Okay. It. My kids are going to watch this. That was a canon movie, by the way. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so this song, the rhythm and the chord progression and the scale in the song is based upon Ravel's Bolero. And it's got like the militaristic kind of drum beat behind it. And you've got a Phrygian scale, which is more Latin music. That was kind of the thing with psychedelic rock is they were taking things beyond just the blues influence of standard rock and bringing in stuff by Ravi Shankar, who was bringing in the sitar and Eastern influences. George Harrison was big for bringing that in right, as well. Sure. Yeah. But they have a definitely different sound to them than just a standard rock song. And so you're listening to this Phrygian scale with this Latin sound, and you would expect this minor chord to come in, but what he does instead is he plays a major chord, which is not what you expect, and so it's unsettling. It's weird. It makes you feel unusual. It's almost as if you're in the upside down, and the Cheshire Cat is smiling at you, but there's evil behind his smile. All songs that were popular at this time would have a standard build, and then you slow down, build again, have a break, and it gives people this little release. This song, there is no break. It is build, build, build. Just like Ravel's Bolero, it just keeps on building, and you almost think it's going to break, but then the song ends, and it is entrancing, amazing, mind-blowing. And when they go and they perform it at Woodstock, you can go watch the video on this. And I told you, after I listened to it, hair on my neck and arms were standing up and I was like holding back the tears. It is incredible what she does with her voice in this song. Incredible. Grace Slick. I think I failed to mention that this song comes in in this episode at 38 minutes and 50 seconds in a little part I like to call Ice Cream and Guns. Ice Cream and Guns. We lose poor Benny. Ah, I I like Benny. Yeah, Benny and Eleven are having a conversation while she's eating ice cream. She's seeing that people can be friendly, and a social worker shows up. Except, it's not a social worker. And Benny gets shot in the head. Yeah. And it's this moment that suddenly we Eleven hears the gunshots, that you get the climax of the song, and it cranks up the volume, and it's... Remember what the Dormouse said, feed your head, feed your head, and she's escaped out of the back. This is her transport to Wonderland, essentially. Yeah, and before she gets out the back door, she's confronted by a couple of guys with guns, who within a few seconds we see lying dead on the floor. Uh-huh. More supernatural powers from Eleven. Yeah. So I got some stuff for you on Grace Slick. Okay. I got some Grace Slick stories, which I thought were hilarious. All Hit right? me. All right, so in 1971, after she had been married to Jerry Slick, who was a member of the Great Society Band, yep. she's in Jefferson Airplane, and she hooks up with Paul Kantner. Okay. And he plays guitar in Jefferson Airplane. They have a daughter together, and when they're in the hospital, the nurse comes in and says, Oh, little girl, congratulations. What's her name? And Grace sees a crucifix around her neck, and she says, God... And the nurse says, what, what was that again? She said, God. But we use a little G because we want her to stay humble. <laughs> so the nurse is like, oh my gosh. So she leaves. She calls the San Francisco Chronicle and says, Grace Slick just named her daughter God. This is uh, before HIPAA, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? patient privacy here. Yeah. Turns out it was just a joke. Her daughter's name is actually China. So anyway, Grace Slick story number two. You ready for this? Yeah. Grace Slick gets an invitation to go to a tea at the White House. Oh, yeah, because she went to school with Nixon's daughter. She's actually 10 years older than her, so they didn't ever attend school together, but Uh she was a Finch College alumni, and she got an invitation. But the invitation was addressed to Grace by her maiden name. So Grace and a friend hatched this plan that they're going to go to the White House, and they're going to put LSD in Richard Nixon's tea. 
Yes. But when she gets there, they won't let her boyfriend in because it's women's only, and she finally just says, nope. So Grace Slick was going to attempt to drug the President of the United States. Also, Grace Slick is credited with being the first person to say the old MFR on national television. It was on the Dick Cavett show. Yeah. Yes. By the way, White Rabbit reaches number eight on the Hot 100. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of songs that I've never heard of, so I'm not going to go through this list for you. <laughs> but number two was a song called I Was Made to Love Her by Stevie Wonder. Okay. And the number one song on July 29, 1967, the week that White Rabbit reached its pinnacle of number eight, is a song called Light My Fire by The Doors. It comes full circle. I'm really glad that you mentioned that because The Doors took their name after the Aldous Huxley book. They also played at Marty Balin's club that I was talking about earlier, right? Right, right. Another group that played at that club was the Steve Miller Blues Band, who had a member that went on to form his own solo band. His name was Boz Skaggs. Oh, Boz Skaggs. Flashback to our Saturday Night Fever episode. And the guys who played as his backing band <laughs> when he toured would go on to form the band Toto, who give us our next song, the first actual 80s song in the episode, last song on the list, it comes in at 41 minutes and 10 seconds when Nancy and Steve are studying. Yeah. There's a little bit of a makeout scene there. And we talked about in our Toto 4 episode how we weren't sure how Africa had suddenly become popular again. And a lot of our fans said it had to be this episode. It's right around that time that this song really took off again. Over 1 billion downloads of this song. Now, we have covered this song in detail and Toto in detail on our Toto 4 podcast episode. And so what we're going to do, because we don't want to try to capture lightning in a bottle, we want to just throw it back and let you guys listen to that here. All right, are we finally there? We could do an entire podcast series on the song that's about to come up. Are you ready, Shirley fans? Best songs of the 1980s. One of the best songs of all time. Songs called Africa. The beat is unmistakable. It's incredible. So for this song, they had Sony come in and help program the keyboards that Steve Percaro is playing, right? Okay. So the marimbas that you hear are that Sony programmed keyboard marimba sound. Before they even get there, they say, we got to have this perfect beat. So they record an entire tape of just Jeff Vaccaro and Lenny Castro playing the drums over and over, same drum beat over and over and over and over and over and over. Right. And once they've done it for a full tape, whatever that might be, they take one measure. They listen to it all and they find the one measure that's perfect and they put that on loop. That's the one right there. This one right here. This one right here. And now keep in mind, this is before computer recording. So when we say on loop, that means that they took the tape, they took that one measure, cut the tape out, then put it on the tape recorder, ran it around a mic stand, around a chair, around another mic stand, and onto the next part of the recorder so that the tape would just rotate in a circle. And that is the way that you have this perfectly synchronized, incredible drum sound for the entire song. Once they got that loop that they liked, David Page and Jeff Picaro laid down the drums and the pianos. One take. One take. But they build off of it. You know, they this is a pyramid it song. Is. It, it is. is. We're starting with the drums, and then we're introducing the keyboards, and then we're introducing the vocals, and it just builds and builds and builds into this amazing collection of music. Hurry, boy, it's waiting there for you. And 
let's talk about how the song was conceived, right? Okay, sure. So David Page wrote this song about Africa. Yes. He'd never been to Africa. Never been there. Went years. Like, I don't think, it was like 21st century before he ultimately got to go to Africa. Right. And they're like, hey, this is such a wonderful song. When did you come to Africa? And he's like, actually, this is my first time. <laughs> How's everybody doing? Good to see you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he went to a Catholic school and he had learned about missionaries. Yeah. And had a subscription in National Geographic. You guys can remember in the 80s when the UNICEF commercials would come on and they would tell you these children in Africa need your help, right? Well, he talked about how when he was a kid, those missionaries would come and talk to at his school and they would talk about how they blessed everything, which I don't really understand. It may be a difference between a Catholic and Protestant thing, but they would bless food. They would bless experiences. And when it rained, they would bless the rain. And that's how you get that line. Oh. I bless the rain down in Africa. But man, it's a fantastic line. doesn't matter. It sounds so wonderful. Okay. So in addition to this concept of blessing things... One of the other things that the missionaries talked about was the difficulties. And obviously, difficulties of seeing people in these deprived conditions was a huge thing. But the other thing that was difficult for them was being alone and celibate out there. And so this song is about a guy who's waiting for a girl to arrive to meet her, right? Yeah. Her plane is coming in, right? And he's 12.30 flight. 12.30 flight. Ready to meet her. And so that's the that's the underlying story of the song. And he meets a man to get some more music. And then the man is like, it's waiting there for you. And then we jump into this chorus. And just before the chorus comes on, I got to say this. We love this chorus. And it seems simple. But listen to it this way, all right? The first line... I bless the rains down in Africa is it's a very simple melody, right? When that second line comes in, you add a second harmony behind it, different notes, and you can hear it. You can hear the distinct notes that the two people are saying. Same words, different notes, and then the third, we add yet a third layer of different notes, which are extremely complicated. You go from simple to complicated over these three lines, and the the magic when you have that two-part harmony behind the very simple underlying chorus and melody is it's magical it's i mean magical hey listen david page said god gave this to him yeah we've talked about how there are some songs that are divinely inspired yeah i think jonathan kane on the journey frontiers albums has yes. faithfully he felt like that god gave that directly to him yes david page is the same way God inspired. He says, I'm talented, but I'm not that talented. God gave this to me. Now then, keep in mind, particularly after hearing the song Waiting for Your Love, <laughs> Steve Lukather said, this is the worst song in the album. Yeah. If this is a hit, I'll run naked down Hollywood Boulevard. So what they would say to each other whenever they didn't want a song on the album is they would say, maybe you should save this for your solo album. <laughs> that is exactly what they said to David Page about this song. Maybe you should save this for maybe. your solo album, David. Yeah. I cannot believe it. It's shocking. Talk about not knowing your own stuff. Now, Steve Picaro didn't like this song either. Right. I saw an interview with him. He said David Page was really into it. Yep. And their agreement was, when you have a song, we're going 100% for you because when I bring a song, I want everybody in on mine. And so they said, that doesn't mean we didn't kill ourselves in this song, but nobody believed in it. Right. At some point, we mentioned that they delayed touring and they went and worked on Thriller for this yes. before they started touring on this one. Right. At some point, when they come back, this is, this is kind of like the Run DMC story that we talked about with Walk This Way. They come back... And David Page gets a call and they're like, man, they are playing the heck out of your song at all of these dance clubs. And he's thinking, Rosanna. He's thinking, make believe, you know, one of those. Right. And he's like, what song? And they're like, Africa. And he said, really? Yeah. He couldn't believe it. And then Africa gets released as a single and it is their only number one hit. So it's the third single. It's released October of 1982. It's their first and only song to hit number one on the Hot 100. Let's talk about the video for a second. Okay. So the video is sort of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark-ish. He's looking through some books sure. in the library. He's wearing that pith hat. <laughs> I'm telling you, Raiders of the Lost Ark was impactful at this time because Hungry Like the Wolf, that video is definitely impacted by Raiders of the Lost sure, Ark. Sure, yeah, yeah. So, and then they're all kind of miniaturized. They're on a stack of books. Yeah, they said that the 
stage is really weird. It was, a, yeah, they painted it all to look like they're standing on top of these books, and it looks like he's looking for a map or something in the library. He's got a torn paper, and he's looking through the book, and it's like the biggest dog ear. <laughs> Right. Not very mysterious. And then you get you've got this African American lady as the librarian, and then suddenly there's a spear being thrown. <laughs> I would say that this video would not pass muster in today's <laughs> world. All right, I'm just I don't think it would. So you've got David Page singing, and then also he's singing the first part, and then of course Bobby Kimball comes in with the second part. And can we talk just a second about his freestyling at the end of the song? Yeah. Holy cow, it's amazing. I talked about that build that they. Had have on the chorus and then when he throws in that freestyle let's listen to it now I'm stealing your info here that's we, okay Go because ahead. we talk we talk and yeah. this is so I'm going to steal you said that Bobby Kimball has an amazing voice but just not all the time Right. And so if you watch the live show, it's a little cringy. Yeah. You're like, a little hit and miss. You're missing. Yeah. You're missing here. Yeah. But when he would hit, it was so good. So these being studio musicians, they knew how to go, oh, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Ah, there we go. That's take, the take one. That word. That's the with one. That word. Yep. That's the one we need. And man, they wove it together in an amazing tapestry. And to bring it full circle. I love this. Yes. Joe Picaro, the guy who said to David Page, you need to meet my son, Jeff. Yes. He's playing the marimbas in the chorus. (laughs) That's fantastic. It is fantastic. So the song was a huge hit. Number one. Surprise to everybody in the band. Yep. Lasts for a long time. And then as all 80 songs do, it falls out of favor. Now I can remember with absolute clarity, 2018, that's four years ago. Yep. I walk into the kitchen. See, my daughter's almost 19 now, so she's it would, she would have been 14 or 15 at the time. Okay. And she is rocking out to Africa. Now, I've given her a lot of good songs, right? You know, I, I, I molded her musical education. Right. As I mentioned, she's a big Metallica fan, thanks to me. Bon Jovi fan, thanks to me. But I'd never played Africa for her. I'm not this huge Toto guy. So when I walk in the kitchen and she's jamming out to Africa, I'm like, where have you heard this song? And she's like... It's just around. It's awesome, Dad. I'm like, yeah, it is awesome, but how do you know it? And then I find out somehow this song is becoming incredibly popular again. It's viral, yeah. And I, t- I, ca- I have, I looked at my old text from like 2017, 2018, and I'm talking to my brother about this. I'm like, how is it this song is becoming big again? It doesn't make any sense to me. And people try to say, well, it was the Weezer thing, but that was after. That was after. That was in response to its popularity. Exactly. And I, as deep as I have dug, I cannot figure it out. Something happened. (laughs) I know it was Japan. I know it was China. I don't know what, what happened. But somehow this song hit that tipping point again in the last five years and suddenly it was everywhere again. I guess I don't get it. And so there was a 14 year old girl who developed the Twitter handle at Weezer Africa. Yes, I love this story. And her sole mission was to get the band Weezer to cover the song Africa. Right. And so she gets so much exposure, she becomes viral with this thing, that Weezer, to troll her, records a version of Rosanna. (laughs) I know, this is hilarious. They're like, oh, we got the wrong song. So close and yet so far. And Rosanna ends up doing very well for them. Uh And so finally they're like, well, crap, maybe we should record. And sure enough, it becomes their biggest hit in like (laughs) 10 years or something like that. They hadn't had a hit since the early 2000s. And suddenly their version of Africa is hitting the charts. You know who plays the lead singer in the video? Our best friend, Mr. Weird Al Yankovic. <laughs> Such a fantastic video. So they take the Weezer concept, that blue back screen. Was it the sweater song? I think it was the sweater song. Okay. And so they do, they recreate that exact play of the video, except that it's Weird Al doing the lead singing in the song. Uh, it's It's great. Hey, there is some sort of sound installation device in the Nabib. <laughs> 
<laughs> Namib. I like David Page. Have never been to Africa, <laughs> so the Namib Namib Desert. Yes, that plays Africa on loop infinitum, just again and again and again, and it's solar powered it's out there in the middle of the desert. That's playing Africa by Toto. So all of humanity is going to cease to exist, and the recording of Africa will live forever. Yes. That's yes. great. The aliens, when they come, will be like, well, I don't know about the civilization, the civilization, but they knew what was good music. <laughs> Once again, Steve Lukather thought it was the worst song on the album. But he did not dance down Hollywood Boulevard naked. Steve Lukather, the ball is in your court. We expect you <laughs> naked down Hollywood Boulevard. It's been a huge hit twice in like two different centuries. It's incredible. <laughs> it's incredible. One of the best songs of the 80s, Spike in the Football. It's one of the best. Absolutely. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us on this special YouTube version covering Stranger Things and the songs behind the episodes. As a special bonus, if you will subscribe, if you will like, and if you will comment on our YouTube page, you can win this awesome set of Stranger Things socks. They have all kinds of designs meant and built for any Stranger Things fan. Jason, yes. are you wearing your Stranger Things socks right now? <laughs> uh, close. I'm holding them. Okay. These are really cool. We got, you got, a, we got some red ones, some yellow ones, some, some blue ones, and they all have Stranger Things-like items on the socks. It's quite a sales pitch. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> Did I say anything incorrect? They're fancy socks. They're Stranger Things. If you're listening to this, you love Stranger Things, you should subscribe to our podcast page on YouTube so you can get a pair of these socks. Yeah, there you go. Let's do it. All right. Before we go, though, I got one more thing. I mentioned a club that Marty Balin founded in order to launch Jefferson Airplane. Yes. I mentioned that other bands like The Doors, The Grateful Dead, the Steve Miller Blues Band, Boz Skaggs all played there. I didn't mention the name of the club. Okay. It was called The Matrix. Get out of here. That is mind-blowing right there. So we know that The Matrix starts off with The White Rabbit. We know that it is largely influenced by Alice in Wonderland. We after watching episode one, season one of Stranger Things, can also see the tie-ins here. I mean, Will Byers is Alice. The Upside Down is Wonderland. It's just Alice in Wonderland, the horror movie, if you will. So it was the perfect... I don't know if I don't know if the writers were the ones that came up with this. I don't know if the Duffer Brothers were the ones that came up with this, or if Nora Felder, the music supervisor, was the one that said we should have The White Rabbit as kind of our climactical song, but... Whoever it was, pure genius. And they also used that song on the recent fourth movie in the Matrix series as a key because, as we know, one pill will take you one place and one pill will take you another place. There you go. That's awesome. Okay, everybody, we're going to take a quick break and do our Shirley Showcase. Today we have an amazing special guest to give us his opinion on Core versus Dirt. We have Mr. Ira Fleischer, who is the drummer for a band called Loungefly. That name may sound familiar to you because it's an STP song. Yes, Loungefly is the premier tribute band for Stone Temple Pilots. And our new buddy, Ira, reached out to us and wants to give his opinion on Core versus Dirt. Let's see what he has to say. Hey, everybody, this is Ira, and I'm the drummer in Loungefly, the premier tribute to Stone Temple Pilots. So it's September 29th, 1992, and I'm working at a CD store, and I'm the drummer in a heavy hair metal type of band. Both Dirt and Core drop on the same day, and I'm at work, and I'm there selling these albums to all kinds of people that want them. Right away and very quickly, Dirt resonates with me because it's heavy, and the vocals were insane, and it was very much what I was used to. It was a heavy metal album, really. And while Core was cool, I really knew it more from the singles from MTV, and they didn't really hit me as hard. It wasn't until I listened to Core and those heavy deep tracks like Piece of Pie and Where the River Goes hit me hard, and that's what grew on me. I think the timelessness of the songs 
the tightness of the songs from core are what really stuck with me the longest, which is why it's nudged over Dirt for me all these years later. While both albums are in my heavy rotation to this day, I just really love where core has gone and how it's matured for me. Wyland's vocals on that record are lush and they're complex, and he does so many different things with his voice. Of course, Lane's got one of the best voices of all time and one of my favorites in rock and roll history. I've really just learned to appreciate how many different things Wyland has done with his voice on all the different records. So I have to give a little bit of a nod to Core, but that's just the way it aged for me. And it was just amazing to be there when both albums were dropped on the same exact day. So thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Again, this is Ira, and I'm the drummer in Loungefly, the premier tribute to Stone Temple Pilots. Please check us out on Facebook, and we're at Loungefly Tribute. We play with a Foo Fighters band, and we put shows on all over the place called 90s Rock Fest. We'd love you to come out and see us, and I'll see you all soon. Take care. That was awesome. I mean, I can you imagine to be there in the store, working in the store when both of these albums drop? And I love that he's like... Eh. It was dirt at first, but then Core eventually won me over, which is probably why he's, you know, being the drummer in the STP premiere tribute band right now. So, you know, there you go. Ira, mark us down. If you guys come to town, we are coming to see you. Yeah, let us know when you get to Oklahoma City. For our fans out there, Shirley fans, be sure and go check these guys out on their Facebook page. You can find out wherever it is that they're playing and go and get your 90s fill. They got some cool stuff on YouTube as well. Thanks, Ira. Okay, guys, thank you so much for listening to this whole episode. We hope we brought you some new and exciting information. Be sure and hit the subscribe button down there. Be sure and hit subscribe on your podcast app. Be sure and hit the link to our podcast so that you can get bigger, fuller episodes on many of the albums and movies that we've covered in the past. Guys, we will see you back here next week when we cover Stranger Things Season 1, Episode 2, and it is cram-packed with songs. Major one-hit wonder from the 80s. Maybe one of the biggest of the 80s. Can't wait. See you back here next week. <laughs>